Good morning. It's great to see you today. Glad you made it. If you have your Bibles, can you open them to Romans 12? Um, if I've not met you, I'm Chris. I'm a lead teaching pastor here at Riverton. I'm glad you're here. Welcome. Um, you caught us in the middle of a conversation, uh, really an exploration of uh, Christian community. Uh, last week, we started a conversation and tried to locate really the answer to this question, what is the church about? What is the central, fundamental message and motivation that binds Christians together across ethnicity, race, culture, nation, class, time, centuries? Like, what's the binding force? Centuries and centuries, y'all, of individuals have radically given their lives to this thing, right? People have given up every aspect, really, of their life. And in doing so, history will show literally has transformed society because people have given up their lives for this thing. What is it? What's this thing, Christian community, right? This is a fascinating side note. Think about it. I want you to go ahead and just test this out, right? Almost all the great humanitarian cultural movements had Christians at the helm of them. Almost all of the great historical humanitarian cultural movements had Christians at the helm of them. Wilbum, Wilbum, Wilbur, William, what? Oh my gosh. William Wilberforce, thank you. Abolition of the slave trade. Education. Medicine. Catalyzed by Christians. We still have a hospital today who have saint in the first name of the hospitals, right? Martin Luther King, civil rights, all unbelievably impacted by this man, Jesus, in the community of faith we call the church, right? So you have centuries of people have radically given their lives to this thing. We're trying to get our minds around, what is this? What is this thing, right? What is this community, right? But there's more startling than, than people who have given their lives to live for it is people who have given their lives to die for it. We have centuries and centuries of people who have laid their life down unto death for this thing, right? So Fox's Book of Martyrs, originally published in the 16th century, attempts to document this throughout history. And what I've been pleading with you is to see that what you are a part of in this room is so much bigger than whether or not you like the music. I'm trying to help us shift from a consumeristic American Christianity that puts us at the center. I'm trying to locate it in time and space amongst uh, things that we have just kind of lost contact with. We've just lost the idea that we're a part of something that so far transcends us. I'm just, I'm, I'm not a good community. I'm, I just get up here and I spit and yell. I'm trying, I'm, I'm saying, I'm trying to say this to you. You are a part of something that is bigger than a communication style. God help us. Right? You're part of something that's bigger than the decor. No one laid their life down because the pastor was funny. Huh? Are we, are we getting this? No one laid their life down because they liked the decor. I am screaming right now. I gotta, I gotta, I'm just, let me just gotta take a break here. Let's pump the brakes. Because if we start this high, I don't know where, there's nowhere else to go. I'm trying to tell us, guys. I'm trying to tell you. You're part of something bigger than your preferences. That's right. 
You're a part of something bigger than this nation. You're a part of something bigger than the agendas that are dominating the cultural stream right now. Right? So whatever the part, whatever part of the surgical church you find yourself in, all right? If you're like, you're Anglican hardcore, you're Luther, or the, good for you. That's great. All of that is secondary to the eternal transcendent mission and message of God that he's inviting you into right now. And that message is not us. That's what I'm trying to say. You finally just said it. Yeah, you know? Finally, you just said it. Good job. Try to say it. The message is not us. Now, what does that mean? The message of Christianity, the flag of the church, why we're in this room, right, is not about our version of Christianity. Okay? All right? If Christ isn't drawing, right, if he's not being exalted, if his work isn't being witnessed, if his love isn't invading our hearts in transformative ways, then we are just a social club and a lame one. Like, I'll take hunting. I'll take sailing over this. If something larger isn't happening in this room, and this is my conviction, something larger is happening in the historical biblical community called the church. For some reason, God has chosen the church, me and you, to be the primary way he gets his arms around people. Now, just to clarify, that's not to strangle, right? <laughs> okay. Some of you are like, I'll be, I'll be that arm, right? No. The primary way he gets his arms around, pe around people to love, to forgive, to extend mercy. He's chosen the foolish things to confound the wise, the weak things to confound the strong. So last week we said a nutshell. You can look at the church from a secular, sociological perspective, and you will be able to find plenty of superficial commonalities that we giggled at last week. Like, in fact, we all drive gray Honda Odysseys, right? And what we talked about is you can look at the church from a secular perspective, uh, a secular perspective and find these things. These are external things, some good things, some not so good, which can often rise to the top and confuse those outside and inside the church what the church is really about. That's what we said last week, right? That happens. <laughs> it's going to happen, all right? But there is also something supernatural happening in the church that outshines all of those secondary superficial commonalities that we may have. That Christ has died. He's risen. And he's come to set us free from the penalty of our own sin. That's the larger supernatural thing happening. That's the flag. That's the hill we die on. The flag is that the weight of our own sinful depravity was crushing us. And the Son of God took the burden on himself. That's the flag, that he met us in our darkness. And by the Holy Spirit breathed new life into us. And in response to that, this is what I'm recapping last week, right? The response to that act, the saints have said, to him belong all glory, honor, wealth, might, praise, respect, adoration, and worship. And they lived declaring and delighting in the goodness of God. What I was trying to say is that the message of Christianity is not us, it's not me, it's not you. It's not about, this is what I mean by that. It's not about how we've embodied our faith. We're gonna have to do that. It's about the fact that Christ suffered in his body, right? It's not about that we've contextualized Christianity. We, we're going to do that. But that's not the flag. It's that Christ has invaded our context. That's the flag, right? To put it in different terms, the effects of the gospel are not 
the gospel. Okay? The effects of the gospel. The flag of the church isn't be ethical, be loving, be unselfish, then God will accept you. That's not the flag. The flag is that God has accepted you despite your inability to be ethical, loving, and moral, right? And becoming an ethical, loving, unselfish person is what happens when the gospel, when the news of the gospel grips your heart. What we proclaim as the church is the great value, the great worth of what he has already done and is still doing. That is our flag. He's taken our sins on himself. The content of Christian community is the gospel, is what he has done. It is not us. It is not our response to the gospel. Are we tracking? Does that make sense? All right. This would lead Dietrich Bonhoeffer to say the goal of Christian community, whom we jacked the title of the series from Life Together, the goal of Christian community is that they meet one another as bringers of the message of salvation. It's beautiful. So as we sit with the question, what is Christian community? What does it look like to do life together as Christians? It makes sense that we sit with the biblical language of how God chose to describe his church. What are the images, the metaphors, the pictures in the Bible? What is the biblical language for the church? And I want to sit with only one today. There's plenty, but there's just one. And if you're reading through the New Testament, the first time it shows up is in Romans 12. This analogy, this picture that God chose to give us as to Help us understand this is what it means to be a part of the church in any time, place, nation, culture, ethnicity, class, whatever, okay? And I want you to remember, as we read this, Romans 12, we're about to open it up. Paul is writing to a church, an established church, who had already heard the primary proclamation of the gospel, and they had already received it. Now he's saying, in light of that news... This is how you guys are formed together. This is how that news plays itself out on the street. All right? So I'm going to read a big chunk, but you guys are big boys and girls. Let's go. We're going to start in verse 3. For by grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. So stop. He is obviously talking to Christians, right? You catch that? To the measure of faith, God, he is talking to the church, me and you, Christian relationships, okay? He is saying, be humble in your relationship with the church. Everything that follows is a rationale for that. Why should you be humble in your relationship with the church? All right, well, let's keep going. Four, as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. He's reminding us the fundamental assumption here, all due to grace, all right? He's centering us on the primary, all due to grace. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, I'm trying, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. In fact, outdo one another in showing honor. Now, he's going to go on with this beautiful description 
of what being members of this body looks like. He says, these guys, this group, this body, they contribute to the needs of each other. They, in fact, he's going to say in 13, they actually seek to show hospitality to each other. They look for ways to bless each other. He said, this group, they, they don't just bless them. They don't just meet each other's needs, but they bless those who persecute them. This, this body, they rejoice with those who rejoice. They weep with those who weep. They seek to live in harmony. This is all, we're not reading, I'm kind of paraphrasing. This is all beneath that, right? They're not haughty. They're willing to associate with people of low position. And as far as it depends on them, they live at peace with everyone they know. In fact, if their enemies are hungry, they give them some food. If their enemies are thirsty, these kind of people, this, this body, if, if their enemies are thirsty, they give them a drink. They meet the needs of those who oppose them. In fact, they, they take a service kind of mentality to people who have declared themselves their enemies. They serve people who hate them. That's what this thing looks like, this body, this church. And it's a breathtaking, beautiful vision of this kind of selfless, Christ-reflecting, Christ-empowered community. The only thing is, it's totally impossible. <laughs> it's totally impossible. We can't do it. None of you can. I can't. All right? And we, we know this, though. We know that the kind of utopian description given in 1 Corinthians 12 is, I mean, think of, think of all the dystopian movies we have right now, right? Like every other movie comes out as a dystopian, which is a movie about a group of people striving for utopia and just falling flat on their face. I mean, how many movies are like that, right? You, can, you probably can relate to failed attempts at trying to strive for some sort of vision like this amongst friends amongst your own community. History itself, y'all, is going to teach us how utterly out of reach this kind of vision for a community is, right? How many nations, communities, groups start with the promise and passion, the ideals of unity and harmony and all the needs being met, no one, and then end in drinking Kool-Aid, right? Right? Like, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? Huh? Like we, we feel it in our bones, this, this vision of a, of, an, of a community, of a culture that's idyllic, it's perfect. We feel it in our bones. We all, we all want to reach for it, right? We have this idea of a, of a community that can exist and meet the needs of others and no one in need and all this kind of acts to thing. But in the end, when we try to um, employ uh, in a community like this, when we try to reach for it, we end up employing by the end fear, control, and oppression right, to achieve the vision. All right, like any cult. It's why I love M. Night Salamander's movie, The Village. All right? The first scene, the first scene of The Village opens, um, what you find out, it opens in a community that you find has attempted to create an ideal suffering-free community, pain-free. They'd all had pain and misery in their lives, remember? And they, they buy this big plot of land and they do all this stuff to create this idyllic, perfect community where everyone you know, has what they need and they're insulated from suffering and sorrow. And how does the movie open? Over a father weeping over the coffin of his son. It's, it is a, it's a stark 
picture that M. Night Salamander's given us, right? And, and, it, and it gets at what we can feel in our own hearts. It's impossible. It's impossible. No matter what boundaries we put up, no matter what kind of oppressive methods we employ, no matter how great the vision is, it fails every time. We can't maintain it. We can't achieve a community that we just described, right? As if to say, no matter how far we run, sin, death, corruption finds us almost as if it was in us. But that's a different sermon, right? What becomes clear is there is no way to create this kind of community by the tools known to men. There is no way. Our laws are not just enough. Our motivations are not pure enough. Our love is not strong enough, our ability to communicate a vision, not clear enough. But think about Paul's description of this community. It does not sound like any community I've ever met. I mean, we're lovely people, but I mean, blessing your enemies? Come on, all right? And if you've been in the church for a long time, you've seen glimpses of it, maybe breathtaking glimpses that remind you of this kind of vision and how we're supposed to function together as a church, you might catch glimpses of it, even here. You might catch glimpses of someone going out of the way to bless you and love you. You might catch glimpses of someone trying to bless their enemies, trying to be kind to those who are against them, right? But this description, think about this description of people who bless, their, go out of the way to meet needs, right? Who jump at the opportunity to bless. Do you know who it sounds like? It sounds like Jesus. It sounds like this, this is describing Jesus. He blessed those who persecuted him. He wept with those who wept. He met the needs of his enemies. Apparently, this community looks like Jesus. It acts like Jesus. It does the things Jesus did. This community exhibits not normal kindness. This community exhibits supernatural kindness. They don't just bless those who bless them. They bless those who persecute them. This is insane. This is a super, and if you don't feel the weight of this, you've not read it. If you don't feel the uh, inability of even us, lovely people, to begin to function in this kind of thing on our own strength, you're not reading it, y'all. You're not paying attention. You've become inoculated. You've just, Christian language just flows right over you. You don't, you don't sit with the reality of what it would look like if you were the kind of person who sought to bless those who do not like you. This is remarkable. It's breathtaking. And we, what becomes clear the more you read scripture, the more you sit with this kind of thing, is there's no way to fulfill this vision without the influence and the strength and the presence of Jesus himself in their midst. Thus, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of Christ. And if you read Acts, you will see that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the existence of the church is inseparable. They go hand in hand, right? Anyone who goes about trying to do the things described will soon find he or she does not stand a chance without the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So the metaphor that's introduced in this passage is a body. Paul says, through the Holy Spirit, you guys are like a body. Jesus followers, they're like a body, right? And just like a body has members and eyes, nose and ears and armpits, right? So the church has many members and they look different and think different and smell different. They have different priorities, but they're all essential. Now don't ask me what an armpit does. I don't know what an armpit does, right? But apparently it's needed, okay? So this analogy, this analogy 
is gonna continue to get built upon in the New Testament. They're gonna come back to this analogy over and over again. They're gonna continue to 1 Corinthians 12. Paul's gonna come back to this exact same analogy. He's gonna drill down more into what this means, that the church is like a body, right? And he's explaining, this is my argument, he's explaining how within Christian community, we don't just tolerate a wide diversity of giftings, of, of personalities, and even of priorities, but we welcome it. Okay, this is gonna challenge us today, okay? All right, let me read this to you. This is 1 Corinthians 12. I want you to see this, okay? It's a big chunk here as well. 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse four. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. Variety of services, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifest of the spirit for the common good. So if you want a platform in the church for anything other than the common good, you're off point, right? If your desire to be in ministry is motivated by anything else than wanting to encourage and bring good into people's life, you've missed the point, right? Eight, for to one is given through the spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge, goes through this big list, and every time he's listing a gift, empowered by the spirit, same spirit, another prophet, another ability to distinguish, distinguish between spirits, that's discernment, another various kinds of tongues, to another interpretations of tongues, all these empowered by one and the same spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body has one I'm sorry, just as the body is one and has many members the same language, all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Here's this racial divide. Jews, Greeks, slave, free, what's that? Economic divide, okay? And all were made to drink of one spirit. Now notice his insistence through this thing on the presence and power of the Holy Spirit driving every component within the church. So if the natural um, or supernatural gifting is the mechanical arm that fulfills a function in the church, then the fuel, the internal combustion, the motivating factor of that arm is the Holy Spirit. That's very clear in this text, okay? 14, four, the body does not consist of one members but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. What's he saying? Have you ever felt you don't fit in in church? <laughs> I certainly have. <laughs> have you ever felt like you don't have the gifting that really makes an impact, you know? Like you don't have the skill to really, you know, do good stuff. He's saying, hey, uh-uh, you're still a vital, essential part of this thing. In fact, he goes on, right? If the whole, in fact, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? See what he's getting at? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. If all were a single, I mean, everyone, I want to, you know, I want to preach, you know, you know, right? If all were a single member, where would the body be? Right? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And then... He starts to deal with people who feel their giftings are better than others. He starts to deal with people who feel they are superior because of their gifting. So in 21, he says, listen, eyeball, you can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Are you getting a picture of this? <laughs> you know, what's the word? 
half person, no feet, no hands, mutilated. It's a mutilated person. That's what he's describing. What's the cause of that mutilation? Pride. Nor again the head to the feet I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. All right, let's chat. What's that mean? What's that mean? Well, let me, let me get at it by asking you a question. How do you respond? Listen, I want y'all to listen. How do you respond when you see a group of Christians who are just obsessed with prayer? I don't know, whatever. They're just obsessed with prayer. Everything's prayer. I gotta pray and pray. They just love to pray and have you prayed about it. What do you do? How do you respond when you meet a group of Christians who are just obsessed with missions? If you're not a missionary, you're not a Christian, basically, it's what I feel like. I'm not on the mission field, so I'm a lesser of a Christian than you. How do you respond when you meet a group of Christians who think everyone should be volunteering in a homeless shelter? We're the arms and hands of Jesus. We got to get out there. If you're not out there, you're not doing the work, right? Always post-serving the poor. How do you respond when you see a group of Christians who insist on this? You're like, do they even preach the gospel? You know, how do you respond when you have a friend who decides that the Orthodox church is really the only legit, historical, biblical expression of the church, right? How do you respond when you have a friend who has some crazy-matic experience, right? And now they speak in tongues and are trying to heal me. No thanks, right? How do you respond? This is my favorite right here. To a friend who picks up a John Eldridge book. And now he wants to rip his shirt off and run into battle with Mel Gibson in a loincloth, right? <laughs> if you're a Christian a long time, you know what I'm talking about, all right? Do you scoff at them contemptuously? Do you immediately point out the imbalance that you perceive? Do you quickly judge and say, well, those prayer people have just lost grip on reality, right? Do you quickly judge and say, man, those, those people that serve the poor nonstop, they've just, uh, they've, they're just social gospel. They don't even preach the gospel, right? All about social justice, right? Do you scoff at your orthodox friend and say he's an elitist snob, Right? You scoff at your crazy-matic friend and just say, well, they've just become a fanatic and they're just riding an emotional roller coaster. And, you know, John Eldridge, he just needs to stop watching Braveheart, you know, read the Bible, maybe, <laughs> right? Or, or do you have room for a church to manifest itself in very distinct and different expressions and emphasis. Do you have room for that? Do you have room for a body? 
Or do you think everyone needs to look and act and think like you? Sorry, I just got real tense in here, didn't everyone breathe? We're going to make it, all right? Do you demand that everyone think the exact same way as you about this or that within the church? This is important. And have the exact same priorities as you. Because this is what I found about Christians. This is what I found about Christian communities and and churches. We tend to do Christian community like we drive. Anyone going faster than you is an idiot with a death wish. And anyone going slower than you is an oblivious, distracted moron. (laughs) Apparently, we tend to think that we are the only ones who know how to do it right. And the arrogant Arrogance can be unbearable sometimes. Hmm? We scoff at anyone who does it different. And I'll tell you, man, I'm going to tell you something right now. More often than not, you are guarding yourself against being challenged by your friend who thinks prayer is important. More often than not, you scoff and ridicule and belittle because you don't want to serve the poor. You got other, you know? More often than not, you are simply protecting yourself from being convicted and challenged to maybe think about something differently than maybe you are a coward. Maybe you do need John Eldridge to kick you in the bum a little bit. <laughs> right? Do we have room for a body like this? Instead of being challenged to grow, we often scoff, we often dismiss. And we often call others into affirming our own thinking by condemning the other party, don't we? Tim Keller points out the potential for our own thinking to actually become an idol. He says this, an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. Idolatry functions widely inside religious communities when doctrinal truth is elevated to the position of a false god. This occurs when people rely on the rightness of their doctrine for their standing with God rather than on God himself and his grace. It is a subtle yet deadly mistake. The sign you've slipped into this form of self-justification is that you become what the book of Proverbs calls a scoffer. Scoffers always show contempt and disdain for opponents rather than graciousness. Scoffers don't bless those who oppose them. This is a sign that they do not see themselves as sinners saved by grace. What, what Paul is saying over and over again, by grace, it's by grace. Instead, they trust in the rightness of their views and this makes them feel superior. Now tell me that's not rampant, huh? Tell me that's not rampant today. Hmm? And I, let me just say this right here too. I contend as an individual to be overly practical and sometimes overly critical. And can I just say to you right now, if I have ever led you in any way to look down your nose on other Christians, I repent before you right now, right? I'm not talking about discerning where Christians have ceased to be Christians. Like we need to be discerning, right? We need to discern ideas and thinkings that may be anti-gospel. But here's the question, and it goes both ways. Are you okay if someone else isn't as passionate as you are about whatever it is, serving the poor, men's ministry, prayer, social justice, right? Racial reconciliation. Are you okay 
if others aren't as passionate as you are about it? Or do you demand that everyone tow the same line you tow? And if they don't, well, they're lesser Christians. This is what it means to be the body. This is what it means to work together in humility, right? Some of us can't sacrifice without demanding everyone else sacrifice just as much. And we think if God is calling me, he must be calling everyone. That's not always true, guys. It's not always true. Some of us have zero tolerance for any Christian who does not look like, think like, have the same priorities as us, right? Now, again, I'm not talking about discerning between uh, bad thinking about God. We deal with that in fear and trembling. And there is a hill we die on. And we talked about that, right? But it's the gospel. And here's the great litmus test for you. Here's a test for you, for you personally, and as you encounter other um, emphasis in Christian circles. With your passions and your talents um, and your own ideas of what it means to be a Christian, here's a litmus test. Um, do, does this emphasis, does this priority, does this whatever it is, um, spring from gratitude in you and cause gratitude in others. It's a wonderful litmus test for anything within the church because if the foundation is the grace given to us, then everything comes from and leads to worship. That's clear in the scriptures, right? And if not, if it doesn't come from and lead to worship, you may be interested in your own unique form of Christianity over and above being a follower of Jesus. Does that make sense, right? This whole body analogy is an argument for humility amidst a very diverse church. Do you see that? Do you see it? Okay. But you may be thinking, well, with such tolerance and diversity and freedom, how does the church maintain unity? Well, the scriptures helps us. So we're going to read Ephesians 4, and then we're going to wrap it up. Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, he says, same thing, same body analogy, coming back to it. He gave some apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Down to 14, he says this, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves, created about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Notice he is addressing false doctrine, right? But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. How does the church maintain unity amidst diversity? Well, the same way your body maintains unity amidst the diversity of your members, it has a head, and it's the to it. Your head says, do this hand, and it does it. So if the church is to be the church, it submits to the authority of Christ and to the direction of Christ. And when it stops doing that, it no longer is the biblical church, y'all. It's clear, right? Amidst the diversity of class, ethnicity, race, culture, nation, centuries, the unity of the church is, in one, in one phrase, obedience to the spirit of Christ. And when we have stopped being obedient to the spirit of Christ, we have stopped being the church. We've disconnected from the head, right? Only when we submit our passions, our talents to Jesus does what we didn't read, everyone grows. The end of that Ephesians, right? Only when we are submitting to him and working properly is what it says at the end. Only when we are submitting to the headship of Jesus, when truth gets saturated in love, when we begin to speak, I, I didn't read the whole thing. Let me go back and read it real quick because I, I skipped this. So 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly and makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The consequence, y'all, when the church begins to amidst diversity, submit to the headship of Jesus is maturity. That's it. That's what I was trying to get at, right? Everyone grows. You come into the room depressed, downcast, and defeated. And when you leave, you feel built up, profoundly encouraged, and fortified. In what? In what? In agreeing that everyone else is an idiot? 
in agreeing and becoming our own little echo chamber of superiority? No, you built up in love. That's what happens, man. You built up in compassion, in mercy, in gratitude, in mission, right? We become what the scripture says, equipped. What does that mean? It means you feel, after you're together with these people, you feel able to move forward. You were stuck. And now you feel like you can start moving. You've become equipped. You're able now to take action because of your engagement with the community of faith. We go out praying more, worshiping more, declaring more, inviting God more, right? Uh, And if this isn't happening right now, right, then we're doing something wrong. If you don't feel encouraged and built up to go out feeling able to do the things we've talked about, then we're either lacking in truth or lacking in love or lacking in both, right? So this idea. Let me say this sentence and then then we'll close it down. What Jesus wants to create in the church is a diverse group of people who span across tribe, tongue, nation, who, because of the goodness of his grace, live their lives out of worship for what he's done. And what does that look like? Humble, encouraging, love-saturated, truth-speaking people from every class, race, culture, who leverage their passions to serve others. There's a really long, you know, grammatically incorrect sentence of what it means to be the church. Oh, seriously, it's so long. Okay, this diverse group of people who span across tribe, tongue, and nation, who because of the goodness of, of God's grace, live their lives out of worship, okay? And what does that look like? It looks like humble, encouraging, love-saturated, truth-speaking people from every class, race, culture, right, who leverage their passions to serve others. That's what we're getting from this whole body thing, right? We are to be a people whose native tongue is that of blessing, not cursing, right? I mean, let's just think about it in terms of our words. What if we just decided that our, the, the language we use around here was going to be one of blessing? to just build up. We're just going to use our work. What if our radar was up to call out and affirm the fruit we see in others' lives, not the flaws we see in others' lives? Like, what would happen? What would happen, right? So this analogy of the body was so profoundly helpful for me, and we're going to, I'm going to wrap up here, as a young, passionate, opinionated Christian who tended to look down on everyone who wasn't giving as much as I was. This analogy of a body was extremely helpful for me, right? I realized as a young, restless Christian, I had taken a very uncharitable position towards the church. I was not full of love for the church when I was young, right? 20-somethings, right? Especially if that church had different priorities than me. (laughs) Not only was I not full of love, I was actually full of judgment, right? So if they thought lights and lasers and smoke were cool. In my heart, I had condemned them, right? You know why? You know why I had condemned them? Because I was insecure and immature. That was not a sign of my superiority. It was a sign of my immaturity. And the Lord rebuked me with this idea of a body. He said, you are a part of something bigger than yourself, little boy. Every time I drove by those churches that I had felt compromised. I felt God say to me, now you're going to wear yourself out praying blessing over them. And every time I drove by one of these churches, I felt as comp- I had in some way been compromised, right? Whatever what it was, right? He was like, bless them. Pray. So I was like, all right. 
driving by, just like lobbing blessing grenades. Bless them, Lord, right? Grow them. And you know what happens when you start praying blessing over something? You get like, you like Pentecost, like I start praying a pair of Jabez over them. Expand them, right? Right? Like something happens in your heart when you start getting behind blessing someone. Try to encourage them, build them up, fill them up, grow their explorers, Lord, just help them, give them vision, right? And all of a sudden I'm driving down the street to praise them, just, you know? Because why? Because I had decided, God had rebuked me. Man, you gotta start blessing the people that you are so different from that you've judged in your heart. And it set me free in a massive area in my heart so that now I can walk in any, I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna go ahead and just boast now. I can walk in any church in America, right? And I can praise. I don't care if it's liturgical, I don't care if it's orthodox, I don't care if it's this, because there's something bigger going on, right? So I can walk in the church and they're singing songs I hate and the preacher that he's, you know, worse than me, I'm just kidding, whatever, you know? And yet, there's something I can find. Now that's called growth, y'all. That's actually called maturity. Not your cynical, critical spirit in the back room. That's called immaturity. And God is calling you to grow today. He's calling you to mature. He's calling you to be the kind of person who blesses. Right? That's what the church does. That's what we're being called to, right? If you began to do this, guess who it would look like? Jesus. Yeah. If you began to bless those who are different than you, if you began to meet the needs of those who oppose you, guess who it would look like? Jesus. Yeah. So... Like, what if you did it? What if you actually did it? What if you went to the person that has that sign in their yard? Just put a 50 in their mailbox. Just leave a note, Jesus told me to do it. What if you went to the person that has that sign in their yard, you know, that one? Cut their grass for them. Tell them, Jesus told me to do it. (laughs) It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's absurd, and it's supernatural, and it's what the church is called to. Until we learn this kind of language, we're not the church. Until we learn this kind of language, we are less than the biblical, historical church of Christ. And so many of us, y'all, in our culture today, we're calling down the fire of God on everyone and everything, and Jesus would say to you, you do not know the spirit you are of. I did not come to destroy. I came to seek and save the lost. Let's stand and pray. I'm telling you, if you will do something about this this week, you're going to go to work, aren't you? Probably got to work. Probably got to deal with your family. Probably got to deal with people. If you begin to wash the feet of those around you, just see if the Holy Spirit doesn't blow the joy off the roof in your heart. Right? Roof off the joy. I got that wrong. I'm not sure. All right. Let's pray.